Okay, so like Mary said, my name is Devin. I am a certified addictions counselor, which recently in the state of Colorado just changed its name. So now it's certified addictions specialist. Um, I worked in the field for a little over 10 years in a variety of positions. And my goal for today is to help you all have a better understanding of substances, substance use disorders, and what recovery from those substances really looks like. Um, and my focus is really on bio parents and teens, um, because I feel like that's what's most prevalent for you all. However, I'm more than happy to ask to answer any questions that you might have, regardless of what it relates to. Um, as kind of a disclaimer, I tried to keep things pretty simple because I didn't want to get too far into the weeds and confuse you all. Um, but again, if you have more specific questions, just send them my way. Okay, Mary already said this, so we will just move along. I'm gonna minimize that. Okay, so first we're gonna talk about alcohol. Alcohol is absolutely the most prevalent um, substance use disorder in America. So here's just some statistics around um, what age groups are using alcohol. So 55% of adults in America report using alcohol in the last month. 26% of those adults report binge drinking in the last month. Um, and for those of you that don't know, binge drinking is defined as more than five drinks for men and more than four drinks for women in a two hour period. Um, so that's quite a bit of people. 19% of youth from ages 12 to 20 report using alcohol in the last month. And about one and a half percent of youth ages 12 to 17 actually meet criteria for an alcohol use disorder, um, which tells us that they need treatment to address that problem. Um, and I will talk more about how we know somebody has a problem after we go through some of the basics about substances. Um, and then, Importantly for all of you, around 10% of children in, the, in America live with a parent with an alcohol use disorder. <clears throat> and we know that alcohol leads to a lot of problems within the home, such as child abuse, neglect, um, low income, domestic violence, other substances, um, legal issues. It really can cause a lot of um, other problems outside of just the parent using. <clears throat> so alcohol-related um, deaths are the third most preventable death in America. Um, opiates are quickly creeping up on that statistic, but alcohol does a lot more damage to the body, to the body than any other substance. Um, so I think that's why we will probably continue to see it that ranked that high. And 31% of all driving deaths can be related to alcohol or traced back to alcohol. Oh. Okay, so what is a standard drink of alcohol? Um, one 12 ounce beer is equal to one 12, or I'm sorry, eight to nine fluid ounces of malt liquor is equal to five ounces of wine is equal to 1.5 ounces of hard alcohol. Um, so it does matter what you're drinking. Um, if you're drinking, I guess, let me slow down. When I ask people that I work with how much they're drinking, a lot of people will say, oh, I drink four beers on the weekend. <clears throat> 
my next question is always, okay, how big is that beer? Is that a 12 ounce beer? Is that a standard 5% alcohol beer? Or is that a tall boy that's 25 ounces? Or is that a um, 40 ounce beer? Because that makes a big difference in quantity. And if that is a problem for you. Um, drinking recommendations. Oh, I have that on my next page. <clears throat> So these are the most recent guidelines from the CDC and the World Health Organization regarding how much is safe to drink per day. So men should not drink more than two of those standard drinks per day, and women should not drink more than one of those standard drinks per day. For both, you should not have more than 14 drinks per week over at least three days. And if you have any predisposed conditions, like if you have breast cancer that runs in your family or you have liver disease, or of course, if you're pregnant, um, the World Health Organization re recommends that you don't drink any alcohol at all. A lot of people don't know this, but if you are predisposed to breast cancer and you drink more than the recommendation or really even any alcohol intake that increases your chances of developing breast cancer by about 8%. So it's pretty significant. <clears throat> okay, here is some information about how alcohol actually impacts us. So when somebody starts drinking, you have that initial euphoria. So dopamine is dumped into the brain You're, by drinking alcohol and um, that feels pleasurable. You feel relaxed. Um, you might have some minor impairment with reasoning and memory, but overall this like your safe zone and this is what people are typically desiring when they're drinking. Once you continue to drink, so after drinking probably two, two and a half drinks, um, your BAL is likely going to rise to about 0.05 or above 0.05. And that just means that your the alcohol is being absorbed more into the body. So you can start to feel a little bit down, maybe disoriented. Um, your hippocampus, which is the part of your brain that stores memories, will start to be impaired, making it more difficult for you to um, create new memories as you're drinking, which is what leads to blackouts. <clears throat> Next, as you continue to drink, so a BAL of about 0.09 to 0.25, so this is what we consider to be legally intoxicated. <clears throat> um, you might have some blurred vision, slurred speech, trouble with your motor skills, <clears throat> like coordination and walking, and a slower reaction time. So at this point, the alcohol starts to impact all areas of your brain. Continuing on, a BAL of about 0 0.180 to 0 0.300 leads to disorientation. Your, the cerebellum part of your brain is significantly impacted, which can cause trouble with coordination and walking. Again, the hippocampus is gonna be impacted and you're more likely to have a blackout when you are this intoxicated because your hippocampus cannot store those memories and function properly. And then these are the bad ones. So 0.2 point, I'm sorry, 0 0.250 to 0.400, <clears throat> your body starts to completely shut down. Um, this is where we see alcohol poisoning and above. 
and the last one, 0.30 and above, um, can cause death because or a coma because your brain is so intoxicated that it forgets how to function. It forgets to tell itself to breathe and for your heart to beat and things like that. <clears throat> this is really just an outline. Um, I worked in detox for I think four years. And there have been plenty of people that have had a BAL of over 400 that I would not even say was intoxicated, walking and talking just fine. And that just speaks to their tolerance. So they have been drinking so heavily for so long that that doesn't even phase their brain anymore, which is really sad. <clears throat> um, another fun fact is people often ask, um, if your BAL is, you know, 0 0.180, how long will it take you to get sober? So a good rule of thumb is about two hours per every um, 0 0.010. <clears throat> so if you are at a 0 0.180, it will take you at least nine hours to get sober. So it takes your body a long time to actually process all of that and for your liver to clean it out of your system. This is why a lot of DUIs happen in the morning because people think that they're ready to drive and they're not. Okay, so I also put in here some information about harm reduction and this is really my own um, soapbox, I would say, because I think that a lot of us are naive in how much substance use and alcohol use is actually happening. Um, and so it's more reasonable to talk about how to teach children or how to teach others how to be safe when using alcohol instead of asking them not to use alcohol at all. Because more than likely, kids, young adults are going to use alcohol at some point and we need to teach them how to do that safely. So for every substance that we talk about, I'm gonna have a slide that talks about harm reduction. Um, and hopefully you guys can kind of take that with a grain of salt and I'm not trying to tell any of you to tell your youth to that it's okay to use drugs and alcohol. That's not at all what I'm saying. <clears throat> but if they're gonna use, then we might as well teach them how to do it in a safe way. Um, so we should always be telling our kiddos to be using any kind of substances in a safe environment, to know the people that they're around, to have the buddy system, have somebody that is not drinking to look out for you. Should really try to have one drink per hour and alternate that drink with a glass of water in between. Should always eat before consuming alcohol. <clears throat> if you feel like alcohol is becoming a problem and you're having control drink, um, having trouble controlling how much you're drinking, then I would encourage you to buy less so that you are more likely to consume less. Don't have as much um, available. Set limits before you start drinking. So as you, as that chart had said, as you start to get intoxicated, those inhibitions are lowered and your brain is not as able to reason. So before you get intoxicated, you should say, I'm going to leave this house by 10 p.m. and I'm going to have two drinks or something like that. You're more likely to follow through with that. Don't mix alcohol with other substances. We already talked about how much that impacts your brain. We don't need to confuse your brain anymore by adding other substances to the mix. 
always be prepared to have six to have safe sex, always have condoms and other um, means available. Again, because those inhibitions are lowered, you just want to be prepared even if it doesn't happen. Have a designated driver. Be aware of the symptoms of alcohol poisoning. So I don't know if you all know the symptoms of alcohol poisoning. <clears throat> it's very similar to symptoms of opiate overdose. Um, so a couple of things to look for is really shallow breathing um, the skin might be cool and, um, clammy to the touch. Your cuticles and your fingernails might start to turn blue, um, kind of a pale skin, a low pulse. You can check somebody's pulse and their, um, respirations. If those are really low or shallow, then that would be an indicator that somebody's brain is really shutting down and they're, um, not able to, those, um, automatic functions of the brain are not really happening. <clears throat> so that would indicate you to you that you need to call 911 because unfortunately people do die from alcohol poisoning when left alone. So when I talk to teens at my healthcare clinic about substance use and alcohol use, I always talk about alcohol poisoning and how important it is to call for help. <clears throat> avoid drinking games in that same light, avoid alcohol that doesn't taste like alcohol, like mixed drinks <clears throat> or like those like fruity little seltzer things because <clears throat> you're more likely to drink more if you don't taste the alcohol. Avoid shots and carbonation. So carbonation actually um, speeds up the process of intoxication within your brain and body. So would not recommend drinking things like champagne. Um, and for you all, all of you parents, I think that it's important to be a positive role model. If you choose to use alcohol in your home, then it's a great opportunity to teach those adolescents what safe alcohol use looks like, <clears throat> because it's likely that they came from a home that there was alcohol and substance use in an unhealthy manner. And we want to teach them that it's possible to use these substances and alcohol in a safe way. It doesn't have to get out of control and you don't have to avoid all your responsibilities and things like that. It's a great opportunity to teach them. All right, I'll pause for a minute. What kinds of questions do you all have on alcohol? Um, there was a question about like uh, body weight and how that might affect um, um, the alcohol intake. That's hard for me to say. I think that it's probably more dependent on somebody's tolerance. Um, and this is kind of just on my own experience. <clears throat> like I said, working in detox for a long time, I saw lots of, lots of little tiny people with very high BALs and lots of bigger people with smaller BALs and their intoxication can be seen very much in the same light. Um, if somebody is of smaller body weight, my recommendation would be to start with smaller amounts and drink slowly. And once you're starting to feel kind of that first level of intoxication, that euphoria that people are seeking to slow down from there or perhaps stop from there. 
Thank you. And then one more question was, can you address how caffeine, how caffeine, caffeinated alcohol drinks affect the body? That's a great question. Um, so that's kind of similar to what I was saying about using more than one substance when you're also using alcohol. So alcohol decreases your pulse. It decreases your respiration. It really depresses all areas of your body. And so when you add something like a stimulant or caffeine, that confuses what's going on because that increases your pulse. It increases your blood pressure <clears throat> and so your body has a hard time deciding what to do. <laughs> <clears throat> Hopefully that made sense. Thanks, Devin. And then one more. No, it made sense. Uh, one more was, do some people have a natural tolerance to alcohol or is tolerance only the result of increasing use of alcohol? I don't know the actual scientific answer to that. I do believe that there, that, that genetic component that we see in alcohol use um, certainly can increase somebody's tolerance without them ever drinking. Um, but definitely when somebody, I mean, I'm sure that you all can relate this to your own life. If you are drinking, you know, more than one day in a row or something like that, suddenly on that third or fourth day, that one drink isn't doing the trick. This is our body's natural response to um, processing alcohol in our body. Or even if you take, like, I know a lot of people do dry January. So you take a month off from drinking. And then that next time that you have an alcoholic beverage, maybe only one drink does the trick. Whereas before it used to take five. Devin, do you see differences generationally with alcohol use? I mean, I, I was born in the seventies and I, we grew up sipping on our parents' beers and sipping on their cocktails and drinking in high school at home, you know, with our parents. And for example, my son, who's 20, he is not interested in the slightest. And I just, I don't know. I find the, and of course he did not grow up sipping on our drinks. <laughs> um, I just find it different uh, or interesting, the differences generationally. Um, I think that would probably depend on the family that you, you grow up in and less about, um, like at what time you're growing up <clears throat> or generation you're growing up in. And then Devin, one more question just came in with caffeine. Does it increase the chances of alcohol poisoning since it's a stimulant and will counteract the sedative effect of alcohol resulting in staying awake longer to drink? No, alcohol is much more powerful on the brain than any caffeine. So if you are drinking an excessive amount, the caffeine is not going to be able to stimulate your brain more than the alcohol is depressing your brain. Thank you. I think that's all that's coming in so far. Just to clarify about the caffeine, the concern around caffeine use with alcohol is mostly around your heart. <clears throat> so the, like I said, the alcohol use is decreasing your um, pulse where the caffeine is increasing it. And that's when you start to see problems. It's a, less about your brain. Thank you. 
All right, we are gonna move on to marijuana, the most popular topic in Colorado. So marijuana is the most widely illicit used drug in America and actually the world. Half of Colorado marijuana users report using marijuana daily. And due to significant changes within marijuana products, specifically in Colorado, we have very limited research on what marijuana actually does to the brain and the long-term impact of that. <clears throat> so big implication here is marijuana is considered illegal on the federal level, which makes it very difficult to study. So the, the longest term study that we have is actually from I think the late 70s, early 80s. And the marijuana that they used in that study was about a 3% THC content. And all of those studies said like, we really don't see a lot of problems. We don't see long-term side effects in a negative way. The brain seems to do okay with this. And that's kind of the message that at least I have heard all of my life. Now that marijuana is legal in a handful of states, including Colorado, the average THC level that we see is around 18% and above that, but that would be the average that we see um, from commercial marijuana. So we really, really don't know what, I mean, that's a big difference, 3% THC to 18% THC. We do not know what kind of implications that might have on the brain long-term. All right, so what do we have going on in Colorado? There are all kinds of marijuana <clears throat> um, or ways that you can ingest marijuana. The most common thing that you all probably think about is what we call flower. So this is the actual marijuana plant that is smoked. There are lots and lots of varieties and strands of this kind of, well, of all kinds of marijuana, but specifically of flower. And like I said, the average THC level is about, I think it's 18 to 22% in Colorado, whereas other states, it's around 4%. And THC, sorry, I should speak more um, in layman's terms. THC is the actual substance within the chemical within marijuana that makes you feel high, that impairs your brain. <clears throat> Compared to CBD, CBD doesn't have any psychoactive effects. <clears throat> So then there's all kinds of edibles as well. Um, edibles come in a variety of things like gummies, gum, soda, cake, brownies, all of those things. <clears throat> Excuse me. Oh, had to hiccup. Um, so the recommended dosing for, 10, for edibles is 10 milligrams of THC or less. So if you were to walk into a dispensary and buy some gummies, you would get these little gummies that are 10 milligrams each. And so they do not recommend that you take more than that. And honestly, you should take significantly less than that if this is your first time, probably like a quarter of it, a third of it, um, and then decide if that, if you need more than that. There is some legislation within Colorado stating that you cannot package more than 100 milligrams of edibles together because you all probably remember when, when um, marijuana was initially um, passed as a legal substance within Colorado, there was all kinds of trouble in the poison control about people taking too many 
too many milligrams of edibles. So this is the newest le legislation that you can only buy 10 milligram increments in a package that would include 10 of those gummies being 100 milligrams to try to decrease all of the emergency room admissions. So with edibles, um, if you were to ingest an edible, you probably wouldn't feel the effects for around an hour, maybe a little bit longer, depending on your metabolism. Um, whereas if you were to smoke marijuana, you would feel the effects within a few minutes. The, the biggest difference is because an edible is being absorbed within your stomach lining and not within your lungs, it, the effects last a lot longer. So it can be anywhere from probably four to 12 hours, depending on your tolerance and the products that you're using. So next up is my personal least favorite and unfortunately very, very common these days. These are concentrates, also called wax, shatter, butter, or dabbing. So the average THC level in this form of marijuana is 68, 69%. So like I said earlier, significantly higher than what we have research on. Really hard to say if this is a safe product to use. So these are very, like the title says, concentrates. So this is very high concentrate of THC in a substance. It can go all the way up to about 95% potency of THC. Within Colorado, people that choose to use concentrates typically will use multiple times per day. So this tells us that they are probably significantly significantly impaired the majority of the day. And this is becoming more and more popular. And the reason for that is that we have a lot of marijuana users in Colorado and their tolerance is increasing from using edibles or flour. And so they need higher concentrations of THC in order to feel any kind of effect. So they move on to concentrates instead of smoking flour all day long and not really feeling anything. The last thing is vapes. So this can be flour, concentrates, um, very, it looks just like any other kind of vape that you would see for using tobacco products, very easily concealable, probably in a lot more schools than we like to think. I jumped ahead a little bit here, but <clears throat> when you're smoking marijuana, it passes through the lungs into the bloodstream, which happens pretty quickly. When you're ingesting it, it passes through the stomach lining into the bloodstream, which is a little bit slower. There is a pretty good ch um, chance of experiencing some kind of psychosis when intoxicated on marijuana. And there's actually a frightening linkage between somebody who is predisposed to schizophrenia, developing schizophrenia after significant marijuana use. So I think that's the last one there. Um, it's about a 10% increase compared to the general population of developing schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is a very um, life-altering mental health disorder <clears throat> where you cannot distinguish reality from your hallucinations. And it's pretty scary, this statistic that we found, and it has continued to be um, validated in every study that we see. So schizophrenia is about, um, about one in 100 people will have schizophrenia. And so if you have any kind of 
predisposition like genetics for mental health disorders that include any kind of psychosis like schizophrenia, then I would highly recommend not using marijuana. Um, another thing that I see pretty often in my clinic is something called cannabinoid hyperemesis. This is when you use so much marijuana and generally high concentrations of marijuana that you have significant nausea, vomiting, usually vomit a lot of stomach acid because you have trouble eating. Um, and the only cure for it is to discontinue or significantly cut back marijuana use. <clears throat> so we see this in the Denver Health Emergency Room and in my clinic all the time. And people do not want to believe that marijuana is the thing causing their nausea because they believe that marijuana is what helps their nausea. Um, so it's kind of like this vicious cycle. And usually when they decide to just give it a try, try cutting back on your marijuana use and see if it helps at all, then they see improvement in those symptoms. The number one um, symptom where we can say, oh, this is cannabinoid hyperemesis and not some other kind of GI problem is when someone says, the only thing that makes me feel better is taking a hot shower. I don't know why that is, but <clears throat> if, if someone says that, that, that probably means they're experiencing cannabinoid hyperemesis. And then daily marijuana use is linked to impaired learning, impaired memory, decreased IQ, and developing mental health symptoms or disorders as an adult. And that is because marijuana significantly impacts your prefrontal cortex of your brain. And your prefrontal cortex is what manages your um, executive functioning in your brain. So things like making decisions, prioritizing problems, um, balancing reason, that is the part of your brain that's most impacted by using marijuana. All right, as promised, here's my harm reduction slide. So start low and slow, especially when using higher concentrations with edibles or um, dabs. <clears throat> so it's use low milligrams and take a decent amount of time before using more. Don't decide, wow, I um, took an edible 30 minutes ago. I don't use any, I don't see any of the side effects or the, I don't feel intoxicated. So I'm gonna take another gummy. Don't do that. Use a designated driver. Always use a trusted source <clears throat> from your marijuana. Um, this is my least favorite thing that a patient might tell me is that they're using, they're smoking marijuana for medical reasons. Well, there's no doctor in the world that will tell you that you should inhale something into your lungs for a medical reason. If you're using marijuana, and there is valid research to suggest marijuana can help with certain medical conditions, but it is very harmful to your lungs and I would recommend edibles over ever smoking it. <clears throat> Be knowledge about what research is out there. So a lot of people that I work with believe that marijuana will cure all of their health ailments. And that very well may be true. However, the research that we have today, which has come a long way in the past few years as um, medical marijuana has been passed in a lot of states, 
the research that we have today says that marijuana is really only helpful for seizure disorders, sleep, and some pain. There's no research that says marijuana is helpful to depression or anxiety, despite popular opinion, and in fact can make both of those things worse. Not, this is gonna be on all my slides. Do not combine marijuana with other substances. Do not share things like mouthpieces, joints, um, the part of the vape. Don't share any of those things. That's germy, especially in COVID. Don't hold the smoke into your lungs. So this is another popular opinion that if I hold it in, then I'm going to get higher. That's not true. That just causes more damage to your lungs. The, the substance is actually absorbed into your lungs rather quickly and holding it in there is just causing more damage. Don't mix marijuana with tobacco products. Tobacco has all kinds of toxins in it and you do not want to be inhaling that into your lungs. Marijuana actually has a significantly higher amount of tar than tobacco products. So again, don't smoke if you don't have to. And then clean your supplies, clean your pipes, clean your water and your bongs, clean all of those things. Questions? Yeah, we have quite a few actually. Um, the first one that popped up does the executive, does marijuana affect the executive functioning um, transfer to babies? Um, like as a fetus? Yeah, I believe the question's like if the mother were to be smoking. So that's a really good question. The research that we have, if a pregnant mom uses marijuana, it, that is linked, and this is pretty consistent with most substances actually, it's linked to low birth weight, smaller head circumference, and development of ADHD later in life. Another question that is in the chat is, if marijuana is linked to the diagnosis of schizophrenia, then does that mean that we are headed towards a generation of people that will all be schizophrenic? <laughs> Gosh, I hope not. <laughs> um, I don't think so. I think that that is still pretty rare. Those percentages are rare. I only say that if that's something that all of us should be knowledgeable, knowledgeable about. If you're, if you have any kind of schizophrenia in your family, then you should avoid using marijuana. And it's not saying that you, if you use marijuana, you will develop schizophrenia. That is not at all what that says. It just says you have an increased chance by about 10%. Um, I have a question, Devin. What are, what are the like popularized things besides dabbing that kids are doing and how is that like affecting um, just different populations that we're seeing in, uh, with kids and child welfare? Um, I guess to clarify, yeah. it's like yeah. what, um, well, how are kids getting this and like how, how is how is it affecting the kids that uh, you see in the hospital? So kids definitely get it from their parents and um, from um, dispensaries. So generally they'll have somebody else who's over 21 or maybe can pass as 21, go into a dispensary and then hand it out to their friends. Well, so, I mean, very similar to alcohol. It is accessible, very accessible. Yeah, especially here. Um, there's some more questions that have popped up. 
Um, how do you work with preteens to educate them about the effects of marijuana? If they're allowed to smoke uh, when they're with their biological family, how do you change their mind about it? So I would probably take the approach um, to emphasize harm reduction and teach them about how that impacts their brain and how they should be careful so that they don't have these long-term consequences as an adult. And really emphasizing as a preteen, your brain is not fully developed. And so by, and even as a teenager, your brain is not fully developed, specifically that prefrontal cortex. And so using marijuana just delays and impairs that development even more. And so if they are going to use marijuana anyways, um, if they're not changing their mind, then I would say, okay, if you're going to smoke with mom and dad, take one hit and then tell them that you're good. Like you don't need to continue to um, like exponentially damage your brain by using a lot of marijuana. And then there's one more question. Um, I have a baby that was born from a mom that was heavily using. Everyone seems to dismiss it. Can I do anything as an early intervention to help him over the next few years? The mom was using marijuana? Yes. Um, I do not know the answer to that. My recommendation would be to work with a childhood behavioral therapist to have the best results. There was, I will say there was for a long time, um, many dispensaries in Colorado were telling pregnant women that it was safe to use marijuana specifically for morning sickness to help with their nausea, um, which is really unfortunate because again, there's no evidence to suggest that and there's other ways to cope with morning sickness. And so there was this really false sense of security that using marijuana while pregnant was safe. Hopefully we have started to disband that theory. Um, I haven't heard that in probably a year. So hopefully people are being more cautious and more knowledgeable of that. Another one, uh, how does secondhand marijuana smoke affect young kids, like kids in a home with a safety plan? Would that, uh, would that be beneficial for them? The only way that it would impact somebody secondhand smoke is the same as secondhand tobacco smoke. You can't get high from secondhand smoke, despite popular belief. Another one. I have a baby that was born from a mom that was, oh, no, sorry. We answered that. I'm sorry. You're good. <laughs> I think that's it right now, Devin. I assumed there'd be a lot of questions on marijuana, <clears throat> but just let me know if more come up. Definitely. All right. Next, we will talk about stimulants. So the category of stimulants includes cocaine, methamphetamine, um, kind of ecstasy. I'm not going to talk about ecstasy today unless you guys have specific questions, just because it's not very prevalent as a use disorder more um, as a recreational substance. And um, so first we'll talk about cocaine. So cocaine is also known as blow, coke, snow, crack, rock, probably a hundred more names, but those are the most common. Cocaine is a very, very powerful substance in terms of dopamine. So dopamine is the neurotransmitter in your brain that makes you feel happy. 
So cocaine gives a significant amount of dopamine into the brain when you're using it. So you have this happiness, you feel really energetic, you feel alert, um, everything just feels really great when you're using cocaine. So there's different kinds of cocaine. There's powder and crack. Powder cocaine can be snorted or injected, or even sometimes people will put it on their gums or under their tongue. That's traditionally how cocaine was used when it was first discovered in South America, similar to the way that we use coffee here in America. Um, when you're snorting or injecting cocaine, the high lasts about 15 to 30 minutes. Whereas if you're using crack cocaine, so crack is um, powder cocaine that is cooked with baking soda. So it looks like a little rock. <clears throat> um, and that can only be smoked or injected. I didn't put injected on there, but, but it is primarily smoked. And the high with crack cocaine is very, very minimal, maybe last five or 10 minutes. And so you see people that are using crack cocaine using all day long, chasing that high. So the other category of stimulants is meth. Meth is unfortunately very popular in Colorado. One of my, probably my least favorite substance based on how it impacts people. Um, you can smoke meth, you can snort it, you can eat it and you can use it intravenously. Same thing, dumps a ton of dopamine into the brain more so than cocaine. Um, how I've heard this described that kind of helps me visualize the difference between meth and other substances is if we quantify dopamine. So let's say when I take a sip of my coffee, that gives me about five pieces of dopamine in my brain. Or if I eat a piece of cake that I really like, maybe that gives me 10 pieces of dopamine in my brain. Then if I use cocaine, that's about, let's say a hundred. And then if I use meth, that's a thousand. It is so much higher than any other kind of dopamine that we can ingest, which is why it is so addicting. So when you're using meth and cocaine, you're gonna have a decreased appetite, increased heart rate, your body temperature will rise, you'll feel energetic, you might feel a little bit shaky. Um, you can have paranoia with both of these substances, more common with meth and hallucinations. Meth is incredibly cheap and incredibly potent. I don't know about other places in America, but definitely in Colorado, you can get very high on meth for definitely less than $20 a day. So it is accessible, cheap. It's all of the things that we do not want in a substance. And then there's something called meth-induced psychosis that looks identical to schizophrenia. So we, as any clinician, we cannot tell the difference between a meth-induced psychosis and a schizophrenic patient. And unfortunately, this meth-induced psychosis can last many, many years, even if somebody stops using meth. And this is why meth is my least favorite substance because it can be so incredibly damaging, even if somebody is sober. Harm reduction, use a trusted source. If you are getting your substance from 
um, a new provider, then I would encourage you to just use a little bit to test that, make sure that it is safe and to the tolerance that you are expecting before using more. Use your own supplies and use clean supplies. And that means everything um, is like a straw or a tutor, a pipe, needles, cottons, all of those things should all be your own and they should all be clean. You should use in a safe and a well-lit area, especially if you're using intravenously. Don't use where you can't see so that you can hit your vein. Take your time. More people will miss a vein or um, end up muscle popping or something like that when they are in a rush. If you're snorting cocaine or meth, chop that up as fine as possible and alternate your nostrils so that you don't have too much damage to one nostril. And if you're snorting, you can put a couple of drops of water in your nose when you're done to help kind of clean that out so that doesn't leave um, a lingering effect in your nostril. Don't use alone. Don't mix with other substances. And if you are using stimulants, try to just use once or avoid stacking because then you're just intensifying the crash that you would experience. So the crash is typically significant sleep, like days and days and days of sleep and eating. Um, and that's not always conducive to work and school and things like that. Drink water, eat food, and if you are going to use, um, have some planned time that you're gonna rest and crash so that you can still go to work and things like that. Questions on stimulants? Um, yeah, a few. Do you have information on the effects of fetuses for all of the drug types you just mentioned, cocaine, meth, uh, so on? Yes, I totally should have put slides in here about that. Um, but very, very similar to marijuana, small birth weight or low birth weight, small head circumference. Um, what is it specific for stimulants? I'm pretty sure the um, um, challenge with concentration is still with stimulants and opiates. I don't know that it's directly linked to ADHD. I don't, I think marijuana is the only one that is, but definitely problems in with attention and concentration. And then another one came in on what are the effects do you see in infants that were exposed to meth in utero and how do you support an infant withdrawing from meth? Fortunately, withdrawal from meth and stimulants is not as troubling as withdrawal from opiates or alcohol for a fetus or a human. Um, so a fetus withdrawing from stimulants or um, that had that kind of exposure and, and as a fetus really just need a lot of comfort and hugs. And that's like the, the proven best way to help with any baby in withdrawal is to console them by holding them, which can be very frustrating for a new mom that maybe is trying to work on getting sober and then they're holding a baby that is crying all day and trying to console that baby, that is a sure way to lead that person back to using. And then um, what are the long-term effects in these children? I don't know that there are any outside of maybe some attention deficits and concentration deficits and predisposed to substance use disorders. 
Is there a link with birth defects and stimulant use in utero? I don't think so. I think that that would be rare um, outside of low birth weight and low and small head circumference. Devin, I'm feeling if they get the most. Um, Go ahead. Say that again. I was going to say, I'm feeling fair clumped. I was to going see. to say that the most. Go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm feeling fair clumped to see these suggestions on how to safely use when we shouldn't be using. Is that just because that's the reality? Like this is inevitable and we have to kind of not embrace it, but I don't know. It feels weird to say even normalize it. Yes, absolutely. Um, I would say that it would be absolutely wonderful if we could count on people to not use substances, especially kids that are automatically predisposed to use substances and develop substance use disorders. It would be wonderful if that just didn't happen, but that's not the reality. And so we want to reduce as much harm as possible and try to help them use substances in a safe way so that they don't develop a use disorder like their parents had. So is that kind of what you do in your work with, with your patients is work more towards harm reduction instead of stopping? Or is it kind of both at the same time? It would depend. So if I have somebody in front of me that absolutely wants to quit using all substances, then great, that's what we will work towards. If I have someone in front of me that isn't really sure, you know, maybe I wanna stop using alcohol, but I don't wanna stop using marijuana, which is the most common thing that I hear, or I wanna stop using heroin, but I don't wanna stop using marijuana. Okay, well, how can I make that safe for you? How can I make sure that that doesn't ca cause more problems in your life? Or maybe somebody says, I don't wanna stop using any substances, but I also want to have a job and pay my child support and be present with my kids. Okay, let's talk about how you can actually do that. How can you be a good parent and use substances? Cause it is possible. Another question that came in, Devin, was will you be covering the counter drugs that a baby was exposed to in utero, such as excessive amounts of over-the-counter drugs? Uh, we have a daughter here born with 17 drugs in her system. Over-the-counter drugs, like what, Tylenol? I would need more information to answer that in an educated way. We'll see if we can get some follow-up information. <clears throat> Um, but I will talk about some treatment not specific to kiddos. Um, the most damaging substance for kids in utero and really at any point in their life is alcohol, which is really unfortunate because it's the most normalized substance, but it does absolutely does the most damage. And so I would encourage you if you have more questions about alcohol in the uterus, I would encourage you to watch last week's training on fetal alcohol syndrome disorder. That person probably has a lot more education than I do and on that specific topic. Um, some clarification to you was asking if, uh, I guess, are there over-the-counter medications that you are seeing being abused? Um, 
such as like or or even stolen over-the-counter drugs uh or sorry stolen prescription drugs possibly bought on the streets like addictive drugs what they're saying yes that is so there's a big difference between over-the-counter drugs and prescription drugs there are over-the-counter drugs that are abused most commonly in adolescence things like um taking any kind of cough suppressant in excess, like um, Mucinex is very popular. Um, I forget the, other, the name of the other one. If you take a lot of those substances, you will hallucinate. So it's a very easy way for kids to get high, um, an accessible way for kids to get high. The other thing is loperamide, so Imodium. If you take an excessive amount of Imodium, it acts in your brain the same way as heroin. Um, you would have to take a lot, like 80 plus pills. Um, but that was a problem for a little while. People were buying the loperamide from Costco and ingesting a lot of those pills. But there's really not, outside of those, there's not a lot of trouble with over-the-counter medicines, thank goodness. Um, prescription drugs, that's a whole different ballgame. So um, prescription stimulants can be challenging, things like Adderall and Ritalin. Adderall is actually very, very similar to methamphetamine in the way that it acts, I'm, I'm sorry, the chemical buildup. Um, I don't mean that to scare you because it certainly can be prescribed in a safe way and can be very helpful, um, but it is very similar to meth. And then um, the biggest problem with prescription drugs is opiates. And there are tons and tons of opiates that are prescribed, unfortunately. Um, and I will talk about opiates next. Were there other questions on stimulants? None that I'm seeing popping up. Okay. So we go ahead. So opiates, this is the, the hot topic lately. Um, so opiate, there's two categories of opiates there. I'm sorry, there's three categories of opiates now. There's prescription opiates. So things like oxycodone, Vicodin, Percocet, Dilaudid, all of those things that would come prescribed from a doctor. Then there's heroin in its own category and synthetic opiates. Those are things like um, fentanyl, which unfortunately is extremely popular right now. Um, so here's just a general overview on opiates. We have opiate receptors all over our body, in our brain, in our spine. Our bodies are meant to help us have pain relief in a safe way. Um, so our opiate receptors will release certain neurotransmitters in order to help us have pain relief. And when, you're, when you take an opiate, that just accelerates that. So that gives us more pain relief, euphoria, um, pretty uh, feeling pretty sedated. Those are all the effects of using opiates. So if you have any of these things going on, you should avoid opiates. So any history of depression or anxiety, history of alcohol or tobacco use disorder, long-term chronic pain, taking opiates for more than seven days is actually shown to have an increased chance of developing an opiate use disorder as well as taking more pills than you're prescribed. So these are all what we would consider a risk factor for someone taking an opiate to potentially develop a problem. The first thing we'll talk about is prescription pain pills. 
These are medicines that are prescribed by a doctor for whatever reason they feel necessary. The majority of people that use pain pills for the first time get their pill from a friend or a family member, whether it was offered to them or they took it from their medicine cabinet. And this is well over 50% of people that take their first pain pill. So be careful with what you have in your medicine cabinet. If you have pain pills, make sure that your kiddos cannot get them. The second most common way was prescribed from a provider and then ended up taking more, more than prescribed. These pills can be taken orally, they can be snorted, they can be crushed up and injected, and they can be crushed up and smoked. I actually, I should have updated this. I just saw a presentation this week um, that said about 10% of um, people that are prescribed pain pills from a provider develop a problem with them. So there must be some new research out. I think that this is actually speaking to perhaps people that use them more than prescribed on occasion, but don't develop a problem. It can be a slippery slope. And this is a, a pretty big problem unique to America. So in 2012, there were 250 million opiate prescriptions in America, which was enough to give every American one bottle of pills. So there is a lot out there. Thankfully, there's been a lot more education and awareness around the dangers of prescription pain pills and people have reeled that in a little bit, but it's definitely still a problem. Heroin. So the, there's two different kinds of heroin. There is powder heroin, which is white, like in that middle picture. And then there's black tar heroin. That is a black sticky substance. In Colorado, we really only have black tar heroin. Um, powder white heroin is primarily seen on the East Coast, and that is because it comes from Asia, whereas black tar heroin is made in Mexico. So the majority of the illicit substances that we see in Colorado come from Mexico. <clears throat> heroin can be snorted, smoked, injected, ingested. Um, most commonly with black tar heroin, it's gonna be smoked or injected. Um, some people snort it, but it's not very pleasant to snort that. More people would snort the powdered white um, heroin. I will say that I didn't believe this to be true until I started my newest job. Um, the 80% of people who use heroin first use prescription pain pills. And I can unfortunately say that that is absolutely accurate. Almost every intake that I do on someone that uses heroin started with pills. And most of them were prescribed. So people switch from prescription pain pills to heroin because it's cheaper and it's more accessible especially now that um, doctors are kind of tightening up their prescription practices with these pain pills and controlled substances in general. So people will get cut off from their doctor and they'll switch to heroin. And then this is our newest problem is fentanyl, um, which we consider to be a synthetic opioid. Because of tolerance and availability, a lot of people are switching to fentanyl. This is extremely common. Um, I used to see 
primarily heroin and prescription pain pills. And I haven't seen that in a long time. Everybody that I see is using fentanyl. In Colorado, um, they're called M30s or Mexican 30s, Mexican oxycodone. That's because it's produced in Mexico and it looks like these little blue pills on the bottom um, right-hand corner of your screen. So that it looks exactly like a 30 milligram oxycodone pill. However, it's not oxycodone, it's fentanyl, which is extremely more potent than oxycodone or heroin. And people are switching to this because it's very um, prevalent. You can get it pretty much anywhere. You can find that you can find fentanyl a lot easier than you can find heroin right now. And um, people develop a tolerance. And so they need more and more pills or they need more and more heroin. And so they switch to fentanyl so they can only take one pill a day or two pills a day or something like that. Fentanyl is highly correlated with drug overdoses. Surprisingly, it's more common to overdose with cocaine that is unknowingly mixed with fentanyl because just as I said, the, the person that's using cocaine doesn't know there's fentanyl in there and they, they have an opiate overdose, but certainly is seen um, with opiate users and overdose. We also see fentanyl in our heroin, our ecstasy, and our meth. So in conclusion, fentanyl is the worst. <laughs> it's very, very difficult to treat um, with the treatment options that we have available. It is just so addicting that it's really hard for people to stop. So overdose. Um, overdose is unfortunately very common. About 12 people a day in Colorado die from an opiate overdose and lots, lots more happen per day and are, are um, revived via Narcan. Narcan is, there's pictures of it right here. Um, they didn't turn out very good, I'm sorry about that. Um, Narcan can be used as a um, intravenous, I'm sorry, intramuscle injection or a nasal spray, more commonly as a nasal spray because it's easier to use. And what Narcan does is it, um, uh, how do I best describe this? If this is a receptor in your brain and an opiate is there and um, so much opiates are on those receptors that you're starting to lose consciousness and lose the ability to breathe on your own, the Narcan comes in and has a stronger affinity to that receptor. And so it knocks the opiate off of that receptor so that you can return to breathing on your own. That's how people die from opiate overdose. They use so many opiates that their brain is inundated in those opiates and your brain loses the ability to um, tell the body to breathe. The symptoms of overdose are very similar to alcohol poisoning. So loss of consciousness, not being responsive, shallow breathing, maybe it sounds like they're choking. Um, some vomiting, vomiting is actually fairly rare. Um, pale skin, feeling clam and cold to the touch, and no pulse or very slow pulse. If someone has a no pulse, then I would recommend giving them an Arcan as soon as possible. I personally recommend that everybody, regardless of your affiliation with a substance user, carries Narcan. Narcan saves thousands of lives, hundreds of thousands of lives. Um, am I 
my pitch to that is that we cannot help somebody that is dead. So addicts have the potential to change and to become great humans again, but we can't do that if they die from an opiate overdose. So Narcan gives them another chance. If you have Narcan, um, there's instructions in the box. Usually you're gonna tilt that person's head back, spray the Narcan into their nose and call 911. You wanna stay with that person until dispatch arrives. And if you're on the phone with dispatch, they can tell you other instructions like doing CPR or maybe giving another dose of Narcan. Typically takes a person two to four minutes to respond from the Narcan. This might be a controversial topic, so you guys are welcome to ask me questions. Harm reduction with opiates. These are probably getting a little repetitive, but use a trusted source. If you're using um, opiates from a new, new source, use um, a smaller amount for that first time to test the potency. Use test strips. So we have test strips at um, the Harm Reduction Action Center downtown where you can test your opiates to see, and stimulants for that matter, to see if there's any fentanyl pre uh, present in your opiate. Always have Narcan, use in a safe, well-lit area, take your time, use clean supplies, use your own supplies, do not mix with other substances. If you're smoking opiates, don't hold that smoke in your lungs because of the same thing that just causes more damage to your lungs, doesn't get you higher. If you're using opiates, try to take breaks. So trying to not use more than two days in a row to help decrease your tolerance and your chances of having a physical dependency. And if you're using prescription pills, um, notice what kinds of pills you're taking and what that produces for you. <clears throat> Avoid taking too much Tylenol. So Tylenol can be very um, dangerous to the body. And we see that we see significant liver impairments for people that use a lot of Percocet and Vicodin because they have a lot of Tylenol in them. And don't use alone. Questions on opiates? The first one that popped up was, um, what symptoms of dependence should you look for with prescribed pain pills? So even someone that is taking prescribed pain pills as prescribed in a safe manner, according to doctor's orders, can still have physical dependence, likely will have physical dependence. And how you can tell is if you stop taking that opiate, um, you'll have withdrawal symptoms. So withdrawal symptoms from opiates are very similar to the flu. So it's things like nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, um, tearing eyes, running nose, excessive sneezing, yawning, feeling restless, anxiety, irritability, um, having like cold, sweats and having goosebumps on your skin. Sometimes you shake, that one's pretty rare. I think those are all of them. Um, most patients describe it as the worst flu they've ever had. Uh-oh, this has my connections unstable. Hopefully you guys can still hear me. I can hear you. Um, yeah, a lot of the patients that I've had at the hospital were, um, also refer to it as like the worst flu when they're coming, coming down to, um, I don't see any other questions popping up. The withdrawal is really terrible. Um, 
I'm sure Mary witnessing it, I often forget how terrible it is until I see someone in withdrawal and it was, it's devastating. They're very, very sick and very, very uncomfortable. And the only thing that's going to make that feeling go away is if they use again or they wait. And I personally have never met someone addicted to substances that is patient. So when you say, you just need to wait a couple of days and then you'll feel better, they're looking like you're crazy because they are not willing to wait a couple of days. Yeah, definitely. Um, and when they're an inpatient, that's exactly correct. If they look at you like, what are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> I don't see any other questions, Devin, so you can keep going. Okay. Oh, the last thing that I was going to say about opiates is in um, 2020, so since the pandemic started, we've seen a 20% increase in opiate overdoses in Colorado alone. So it's, the pandemic has definitely made people with a substance use disorder have worse substance use disorders because isolation and unemployment and all of those things are not good. Another fun fact, unemployment in 2020 was significantly correlated with developing an alcohol use disorder, even if you've never had a problem with alcohol before. So check on your friends if they're unemployed. So this is how we actually tell if somebody has a problem with a substance. There are 11 criteria that we look at when we diagnose. So just because somebody drinks every day or uses, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have a problem with that substance. So overall, what we look for is somebody that continues to use a substance even if they have negative consequences. So child welfare is a perfect example of this. A parent uses meth, has their children taken away or has an investigation and continues to use that substance. That absolutely means that they have a substance use disorder. <clears throat> So here are the criteria. The first one would be using in a hazardous way. So if you choose to use a substance that would be considered dangerous, such as driving while intoxicated, um, overdosing, maybe getting in a, a fist fight with someone when you're intoxicated, things like that, that is one symptom. The next would be causing problems within your relationships. So if you have a hard time, um, having a healthy relationship with friends, your spouse, your parents, your kids, um, and that is directly related to your substance use, that's a problem. Your substance use um, gets in the way of you meeting your other responsibilities. So maybe you are missing work or you're showing up late or showing up hungover, you're failing school, or you're not um, doing the things that you're supposed to do while you're at home because you're either using or you're sick. Withdrawal is a symptom. So when you stop using a substance, you feel yucky, kind of depends on the substance, what those withdrawal symptoms would look like. Um, that would be an indicator. Tolerance is an indicator. So if you have to use more and more of that substance to get the same effect, that would tell us maybe there's a problem. If there are times that you have said, um, you know, I'm only gonna drink a six pack tonight and then when that six pack is gone, you go get more alcohol. So you, you say, I'm only gonna use this amount and then you don't stick to that. Or you say, oh, I'm not gonna drink tonight and then you do. That could be an indicator. 
having trouble cutting back or controlling your use or having trouble quitting entirely. Spending a lot of time in your day either um, getting substances, so our illicit substances in Colorado can be, they're certainly accessible, but they can be hard to get depend on, depending on supply and demand. Um, so if you spend all day getting money and getting your drugs, then that could be an indicator. If you spend all day or a significant amount of your time using a substance or even recovering from that um, withdrawal period, those are all indicators. If you choose to use a substance, even though you have a physical or psychological problem related to that substance. So my example would be if you have lung cancer and you continue to use tobacco products, that tells us there's a problem there. And you choose to give up activities that you enjoy doing or are obligated to doing in order to use the substance and having a physical or emotional craving to use the substance. So those are all of the things that we look for um, before we say somebody has a problem or not. They don't necessarily need to have all of those. Um, we diagnose substance use disorders on a spectrum. So someone could have a couple of these and we would say, oh, you have a mild substance use disorder or someone could have more than half of these and we would say you have a severe substance use disorder. So there is a lot of stigma and shame around people that have substance use disorders. Um, there's probably a really long, boring explanation for that. Um, but there have been time and time again, uh, research that shows that substance use disorders are genetic, they are a medical disease, and relapse is a symptom of that medical disease. And so it's really, really unfair for us to treat substance use disorders differently than we treat diabetes. So diabetes is sometimes a preventable um, medical disease that is chronic. It's going to be there the rest of your life and needs a lot of treatment and attention in order to be stable. So I personally don't like the terms like alcohol abuse, alcohol dependence, addict, alcoholic, any of those things. Um, for one, they're outdated. We don't diagnose that way anymore. And we wouldn't talk about other people that way. So again, it's not really fair. We wanna treat these people like humans that they are. They're not bad people, they just have a problem. Treatment. So before I talk too much about this, I'm actually going to go back. Um, I would like everyone to just take a minute to think about their New Year's resolution that they made this year. And if you would like, you can share it in the chat, keep it to yourself, whatever you would like. Everyone got theirs? Whoopsies, keep doing that. Now I want you to think about how long you kept that New Year's resolution. Are you still committed to that or did you give up? Or did you change what that, what success for that New Year's resolution looked like? Because statistically, this is the time of year that everyone gives up on their New Year's resolution. 
So if you are still on track and you've made that change, congratulations, you are the rare few. For those of you that didn't stick with that change or found a reason why you couldn't stick with that change, I'd like you to think about how hard it would be for someone with a physical, medical problem, like a substance use disorder, to make that kind of change, to say, I'm going to quit using substances. It is incredibly hard. And we often um, discount how hard that is. We think, oh, they should just stop. They should just change, go to treatment. It's not that big of a deal. Well, I know for myself, change is really hard. I haven't stuck with my New Year's resolution and I would bet a lot of you haven't either. And that just speaks to how hard it is for a human to change and create sustainable change. So here are some, uh, a discussion about treatment and recovery. So there's no one way to recover from a substance use disorder. There are lots and lots and lots of ways. The most proven um, method that we currently use is what we call a multidimensional approach or multiple pathways just to sobriety and recovery. So one thing that might work for some person is might not work for the other person, and that's okay. We have to figure out what um, individual treatment plan will help that person recover and have sustainable sobriety. There is a difference between being abstinent and sober. Someone who is abstinent is just not using a substance. Somebody is sober or is working on recovery, that's what they're doing. They're actively pursuing change so that they do not return to using that substance. So sobriety and recovery is the active pursuit of abstinence and lifestyle change. If somebody has a substance use disorder, it is likely that they will have to change every single part of their life in order to stay sober, which is very daunting. Different treatment, treatment options are peer support groups, most commonly AA, NA, um, LifeRing, Smart Recovery, things like that. Individual therapy, group therapy, which can be, um, there's different levels of group therapy. So there's one that's called standard outpatient or traditional outpatient, which would be one group a week. And intensive outpatient, which would be three groups a week, totaling about nine or 10 hours of therapy, group therapy. There's sober living or transitional residential treatment where you live in a sober house with other sober people and perhaps staff members that keep you on track and accountable, but you're allowed to leave and like go to work or see your kids and things like that. Short-term inpatient is typically what we think of when we think about rehab for substance use disorders. Um, it's usually 28 to 30 days. Um, unfortunately, there's not a lot of research to suggest that that would be that's helpful. Um, our research really tells us that somebody with a significant substance use disorder should be inpatient for about 90 days in order for that to really take hold. Um, and our biggest problem there is insurance coverage. Insurance typically only covers around 14 days of inpatient treatment. So we have a lot of systemic work to do in order to support people that are looking for recovery. Long-term inpatient, so that would be 45, 90 days and above. Holistic therapy, 
which I honestly don't know a ton about, but there's some research for that, and medication-assisted treatment, which is the first-line recommendation for anyone with an opiate use disorder. Those are things like methadone, suboxone, Vivitrol. All right. We have plenty of time for questions. And then if you guys don't have questions, I have a um, video I can share. Yeah, Devin, there is a question um, going back to the substance use disorders. What percentage of adults with substance use disorders who are getting help recover? We don't have very good research on that because um, this is a lifelong journey. So how do we, do we have to follow someone to the end of their life and ask if they were sober that entire time to really consider that to be a success? Or do we consider it success that they've been sober for 30 days, a year, five years, things like that? The re, um, perhaps more helpful research would say that somebody has a significant, like really, really high, like over 80% chance of relapsing in the first five years of their recovery of sobriety. It takes a long time for the brain to recover, for people to really address those issues that brought them to using substances in the first place, to have stable jobs, supportive and sober friends, all of those things. So after you've been sober for five years, it's, it kind of goes, um, sorry, wrong way, goes down. You're, after five years, you have about a 20% chance of relapse. So people are not even in the safe zone until they've been sober for five years. That's a long time. <laughs> and then there was another question that popped up. What percentage of children are in foster care due to parents with substance use disorders? I don't, do you know that? I don't know that, but I would probably say most. My guess would probably be 70 to 80%, if not more. It's a big problem. Yeah, definitely a lot of co-occurring stuff happening. And then one more question. question. Yeah, sorry. No, I've already done all these. I'm, I want questions. <laughs> all right, all right, they're, they're coming in. What is the success rate of children returning home? I, I guess, can you be a little more specific with that question? Uh, whoever wrote that, it was anonymous. I wish we had stats, just even not related to substance use, but how many kids, because there are, it's a significant amount of kids who end up re-entering care after a, a reunification. Uh, so that would be, that would be interesting to know. For me, Devin, I, here we go again. <laughs> for substance use in child welfare are very hard to accomplish. Um, they're not traditionally set up for success. If you have a relapse or have a positive UA or miss an appointment, you are on treatment plan. Um, my personal opinion, there's a program called New Directions for Families in Littleton where um, they do a ton of child welfare referrals where the mom can go to treatment long-term. I think it's around six, four to six month program and their kids can live with them. 
they have, child, they have a certified childcare um, program and they really focused on recovery, parenting, how to have a healthy family, all of those things. And it's really cool because it keeps the family together and allows room for healing in a safe way. Yeah, I would say I, I agree with that because in my personal experience um, with, with cases that I've seen and have had, I have seen um, returns home after 60 days of being, of cleany ways. And that's just not very far into recovery. And as expected, it, it did not last. Sorry, guys, it looks like Devin's glitching a little bit. It's tricky. Oh, am I? Am I good? There you are. Start over if you were talking. Um, substance use with parents is really tricky because someone that is um, addicted to a substance, they, they know that they're not being the best parent that they can be. They don't feel good about that. They're not doing that on purpose. They're doing that because their brain has made them only focus on getting their needs met in terms of craving and that substance. And that creates a lot of shame, the best that they can do. And then their kids get taken away, away from them and they feel more shame. Wow. I really, really suck as a parent. Why would I try? Why would I do anything different than I do now? My kids are better off without me. So then that shame leads to more use, leads to more consequences, leads to more shame. It's ugly. And I recognize that I'm probably saying a lot of controversial things <laughs> that maybe you all don't agree with. And I would love to have more conversation about that. You can challenge me for sure. Well, and I feel like it's almost a no-win situation within child welfare because a lot of times we're battling generational addiction. Um, and I just feel like, you know, we're supposed to have a permanency plan within six months and that plan enacted within a year. And even the case, though most cases go two years or more, that's still not enough time, in my opinion, for a, a generational addiction to, to be recovered or even necessarily be safe. I don't know. What do you think? It really depends on the person. Um, there are people that get involved with child, well, I'm sorry, parents that get in charge. <laughs> get involved with parent welfare. Oh my gosh, I have to start all over. There are parents that get involved in child welfare and change their life completely and never go back. There are people that are in recovery that decided they were going to stop using and have never relapsed. All of those things are possible. But we also have to recognize that relapse is potential and that doesn't necessarily mean a failure. If you think about that New Year's resolution, if your New Year's resolution was, I'm not going to eat more any more sugar and you have cake on your birthday, does that mean that you failed and you cannot start again tomorrow and say, 
I'm not going to eat sugar anymore. I know that's simplifying things quite a bit, <clears throat> but we, we really do not recognize how challenging this kind of change is. And just because somebody relapsed doesn't mean that they have now forgotten everything that they have learned in sobriety. So if they were sober for six months working a recovery program and then they use, that doesn't mean that they lost all that knowledge from six months before and they have to start completely over. They can choose to continue using or choose to put it down and get back on track. So here's a question. Why aren't there more solid programs to help parents? What do you think needs to happen to be successful? What a great question. Um, it starts way up at the top and not surprisingly, it really comes down to funding. These resources are just not accessible. Most people that use substances and are in the child welfare system are from low economic status. They don't have money to go to the treatment that they might need in order to recover. So a typical 28 day inpatient stay in Colorado, the absolute cheapest is $15,000 out of pocket. And that, it just goes up from there. I would say the average is probably around $50,000 for one month. And like I said, that doesn't guarantee success or sustained change. So we have fundamental problems in how we um, make these services accessible to people that need it. Thankfully, uh, there has been a change in Colorado legislation starting in January saying that Medicaid will cover inpatient treatment for substance use. That's never happened before. The only inpatient treatment that's ever been covered by Medicaid is if someone's pregnant. <clears throat> you can get treatment if you're pregnant and you have a substance use disorder. You've never been able to get treatment before in, on a residential level. You can get outpatient treatment, but that might not do the job. So this is a big, big change. Um, it's rather bumpy in our system right now and you have to jump through quite a few hoops to get that kind of service, but it's certainly a step in the right direction. Are there private insurances that cover thing, uh, residential? Yes, but typically it's around 14 days that they will cover. And then after that, um, that the treatment facility has to submit a prior authorization to the insurance every day to say that that person needs to stay in treatment for one more day. It's very, very um, time consuming and not productive to actually providing somebody care. Every now and again, they'll say, okay, we'll pay for three more days, but not usually. So it's therapists fighting with insurance companies saying this person needs to stay, otherwise they're going to be right back in here and you're going to be paying for it again. Which well, probably I'm, surprise any of you. If you have commercial insurance, they don't want to pay for anything. <laughs> I'm guessing that also stigma is just part of the, the lack of resources. Yeah, and I do think that we're making strides in that area. Um I think that it's it, 
people are talking about it more and it's being more, um, there's more compassion around substance use disorders. I would guess that everybody in this training right now knows someone personally, perhaps outside of the parents that you're working, the biological parents that you're working with that have a substance use disorder. And so we're, we're finding a lot more compassion because unfortunately it's very prevalent. And it's easier to have compassion about someone that you love who has a substance use disorder than a stranger. What are the preventative measures that can be taken to help break the cycle of generational substance use disorder? Nice question, that was very thoughtful. What are the steps that can be taken? I would say first and foremost, education. This isn't something that is taught in school or even really gone over by medical professionals or anything like that. If you have substance use disorders in your family, you're not really educated on what that really means and how you can avoid that. So my personal, <laughs> statement would be if there, if you have like, let's say my mom is addicted to cocaine. I will never touch cocaine. It is not smart for me to do because I'm setting myself up for failure. It's not worth the risk of having a good time and developing a substance use disorder. Same with, um, opiates and alcohol. If you have somebody, if your mom is addicted to alcohol, you should never touch alcohol or opiates. Or if you do choose to use those, you should use them very, very cautiously because you're set up for failure. And other way around, if you have a mom or any parent that is, has an opiate use disorder, you should be very careful with alcohol. There's another question in there, uh, Devin. Yeah. I don't know if you saw it or not. Um, do you know of any inpatient treatment covered by Medicaid for teen uh, parents? I found lots of treatment centers for teens without kids or adults over 21 with kids. Um, I would have to look further into that because fortunately... There's not a lot of programs that are currently approved by Medicaid, but there are a lot of programs that are in the process of being approved by Medicaid because you have to go through a certification process so Medicaid can say, yes, we endorse this program. Um, and because this is very, very new, there's only really a handful of programs right now, um, but that will continue to increase. I know that um, I used to work at a program, it wasn't specifically for teen moms, but we did have pregnant moms. It was an adolescent program, long-term residential for dual diagnosis in Fort Collins called Turning Point. So most kids stayed there from anywhere from five months to two years. And we saw a range of um, kids from about 12 to 13, all the way up to 21. But I can look more into that if you wanna send me your email. Um, I can send you an email if I can get some more information about maybe some more stuff local. I know that Sandstone Residential um, does something for kiddos. Um, I'm not sure if they're, if they're for teenage uh, kids, but kids I send 
to residentials. Um, her substance mostly are sandstone. And then there's one in Glenwood Springs too that does take Medicaid. There's just a oh, long yeah. list. It's called Valley View, I believe. Yeah, good call. I forgot about that one. No worries. There are also some loopholes with that and that you can find payment sometimes within human services or within the youth correctional system. Um, and sometimes even with other insurances, including Medicaid, if you, they have a primary mental health diagnosis, they're more likely to cover residential services with a primary mental health diagnosis, secondary substance use diagnosis. That might open up some more options. Another question came up, Devin, are substance use disorders addressed in public education system as far as a curriculum? I don't know, but I know in my experience, absolutely not. And if they are, I would really wonder um, because of funding, if they are able to talk about some of the, the realness that I just talked about of how to use substances safely. I would really say that it's on the burden of the parent. And to that notion, <clears throat> fear is not an effective tactic for telling someone what to do or telling them how to make best decisions. Fear will not stop someone from using a substance. So saying, you know, you can't do this because you will die or you will get addicted or all of those things, that's not going to stop somebody. Very, very, very few people will actually respond to a fear-based tactic. So I would really encourage you if you're having conversations with your adolescents um, to be really open and honest with them. You know, what do these substances do to their brain and their body? Why, why should they be cautious? Because they're going to find the information either they're from their friends, which may not be reputable from the internet, which may not be a reputable job to give them valid and reliable information and education so that they can make good decisions. I cannot believe some of the things that adolescents have told me that their friends tell me about, tell them about drugs. I'm like, that is not true. <laughs> Absolutely not true. What? Don't believe them. <laughs> And if you um, are taking somebody to a counselor or a doctor, you can ask that person, hey, can you just have some really blunt conversations with my adolescent about substance use? Not completely you. My outsider. Devin, how common is it that people actually safely use and don't fall into addiction? Do people do that? Like, are there people who use meth and heroin and lead a normal life? Absolutely. And it, the percentage depends on the substance. So the absolute most addictive substance is nicotine. It's the hardest substance to quit using. Also the most normalized and accessible in our country. We're a little bit backwards in terms of how um, our policies and legislation reflect research. I'm sure none of you are surprised by that. The second most addictive drug is heroin. I don't think that we really have research to show 
of fentanyl, but I would argue fentanyl is more addictive than heroin and then meth. So your chances of using those substances and continuing to use those substances are very high. Um, but it, it's not a guarantee. There, there are a lot, shockingly a lot of people that use these substances recreationally and have no negative consequences from using. It, it, it always surprises me when someone says like, oh, I just use meth once a month. I'm like, oh, good for you. How? How do you do that? <laughs> um, and I would argue that they probably have a lot of good going in their life. They have good relationships, um, positive support. They don't have other stressors that typically lead to needing something to cope with life. Substance use is a very, very effective coping skill. It numbs and blocks everything. However, it's not a healthy coping skill. So that would be another thing I would maybe um, suggest for preventing a substance use disorder is teach these kiddos how to cope with life in a healthy way. Devin, there's another question that came in and um, I, I get this question a lot at the hospital I work at, or what are your thoughts on how to deal with vaping? A lot of kids come into the hospital vaping and ask for nicotine gum. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, vaping is a yucky one. Um, if somebody was willing to make changes to their vaping, I would suggest medications such as um, nicotine gum, nicotine lozenges, nicotine patches. Those are almost always covered by insurance and relatively safe. Um, like the worst side effect is maybe a rash or some nausea. They're pretty safe. If someone isn't willing to make changes, then I would really encourage them to be conscious about their using. I think vaping is way more um, like accessible. Like you can use it in the house. So you can just have it there. You don't have to smoke a full cigarette. You can just take a hit. And so being more aware of how much you're actually using that vape, because people will use it over and over and over again in an hour and not even realize how much they were using. Whereas if they were smoking a cigarette, they would go, oh, I don't need another cigarette. I just had one. So creating awareness around that and trying to make some um, limitations. Like I'm only going to have one hit of this vape an hour or something like that. Another thing I suggest with vapes is keeping it out of sight. So I know a lot of people will have it like right by their on their coffee table or right by their computer or something. And then it's just right there and they grab it. So take your hit and then go put it in a closet so that it's not right there, ready for you to keep using. 